Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at our regular time, 10.30 a.m., Thursday, April 11th. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Paige Winfield Cunningham of the Washington Post. Good morning, Julie. Margo Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hello. And back with us after having a baby foot surgery and the latest season of her own podcast is Sarah Cliff of Vox.com. Welcome back, Sarah. I am very happy to be back, Julie. We also have an interview this week with Cece Connolly, president and CEO of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. She'll talk about how the nonprofit health plans her organization represents differ from the rest of what we think of as the health insurance industry. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. Okay, the news. Let's start with the big picture. On the Democratic side, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, presidential candidate and Senator Bernie Sanders, on Wednesday introduced his latest version of Medicare for All. It's pretty much the same as previous versions with the specific addition of coverage of non-institutional long-term care services. The last few months have seen a barrage of Medicare expansion, but not quite Medicare for All proposals. Um, where are we now with the real deal? Has, has is Do we feel like this is still sort the central thing, or are we looking at something else? Sarah? I think it is really a central thing as we get into 2020. Um, You know, I think yesterday was the bill wasn't very different, as you mentioned, Julie, from 2017, but it was another moment for Senator Sanders, for one of his um, competitors in the primary, Kirsten Gillibrand, who was also at his press conference, to talk about their support for Medicare for All and really boost this as a main party platform going into the presidential election. So, I, I mean, what jumped out at me about the release of the bill is that we're seeing more benefits added on. We're still not getting a financing plan. So, along, but there was a white paper of options. There was, there was a wh- not a white. Paper <laughs> I, I think of that options. is generous. There was. There was a, <laughs> they called it a white paper. There was a four-page paper with like a half page of bullet points, <laughs> and those were the options. So we are getting no farther along on like a key question that Margo has been writing about about okay, how much does this cost, and how do we pay for it? And that's where things get tough. We're not really getting into that quite yet. I did notice that when it said that there were no, uh, you know, no the, the big selling point of Medicare for All is no premiums, no deductibles, no copays, except that the first financing option was a premium for employers and employees. And I thought, oh, OK, at least acknowledging that it's going to have to be paid for at some point and somehow. I mean, Democrats are in a pretty sweet spot right now where they obviously can't pass any of this, so they can remain very aspirational. And it was really striking to me that Sanders agreed to add on this long-term care element because I think there had been discussion of it back in 2017, and they specifically didn't add it on, partly because it does add this massive cost and presents more problems in how you pay for it. But um, you saw the House version of the bill from uh, Pramila Jayapal. She included the long-term care version. So I, I 
feel like, and also she included the institutional care version, right? I feel which like, is even more expensive. I feel like Senator Sanders didn't want to have people talking up, comparing his bill to her bill, and talking about it as being less generous. I don't know. It all just seems really aspirational to me still because they're sort of laying out all of these benefits and don't seem too terribly concerned at the moment of how they'd pay for it. Isn't it supposed to be aspirational at this point? Yeah, yeah. I, I think this question about how much is it in the mainstream of the party, how much of it is part should be should we think of as central to our 2020 conversation actually is helped by the fact that in addition to Kirsten Gillenbrand, who was at the press conference, there were several other 2020 contenders who remain co-sponsors of this legislation. And when they talk about health care policy on the stump, they're like a little bit more equivocal about what they want. But they still are signing their name to not just the notion that they would vote for this bill, but that they are a sponsor of it, that they want to advocate for it and that they think that this is the path forward. And But so, they're almost all on other bills, too, right? I, yeah. I think they're starting mm-hmm. to hedge their bets. It's like, well, we're going to sign up for Medicare for all, but then we're going to sign up for Medicare buy-in and we're going to sign up for Medicare for some. Well, you know, Sanders used to be like that, too. And now he's actually sort of hardened his position by saying, no, it's this or a bust. Uh, I think it's not that unusual for politicians who have a particular policy goal to sign on to various incremental ways along the way, and then also the most expansive version of that. I think that's not intellectually inconsistent. But I do think that Sanders is now trying to brand himself as the most committed, the most pure by saying, uh, I'm no longer in favor of these steps along the way. I really want to do the whole thing. And as he points out, he was there first of everybody who's running. He was probably there before some of the people who were running were born. Uh, but the stuff that Page talks about is, is interesting, too, because I do think that the House bill is a little bit further to the left than Sanders on not just on this long term care question, but uh, the Sanders bill seems to have changed a little bit in how it deals with undocumented people that I think has been pulled to the left by the House proposal. And the House proposal, of course, uh, would make this transition from our current healthcare system to a Medicare for all system extremely rapidly in uh, just a little bit more than two years. The Sanders bill has kind of a little bit of a slower transition, a four-year transition. And when you talk to Senator Sanders, he says, you know, well, we don't have this impractical, you know, super fast transition. We have a very reasonable (laughs) step-by-step four-year transition. So To uh, this gigantic change. But I think it's interesting he didn't adopt that change from the House bill because you kind of saw him like pulling his bill to the left. And like Paige said, you know, this is... We're a bit in fantasy land, right? You can write whatever bill you want now because it's not going to pass. And I think it's interesting that he's still stuck with this four-year transition period because you could see a world where he says, you know what? The House is doing two years. Let's get there faster. That sounds better when I'm out campaigning. So it was interesting to me. That was one part of the bill that he was – and I still think four years is pretty fast. <laughs> um, but that he was it not It took the Affordable there. Care Act yes. four years and it did about a tenth of what this And it do. didn't go so great. Yeah, it didn't go so great. In one sense though, like it's kind of like Senator Sanders doesn't really have to prove himself in a way that some other of the 2020 candidates do, at least with party progressives, because he's been seen as the guy on this for like years. I mean it's not like he has to convince, you know, liberal the, – the liberal voters that will turn out in the Democratic primaries that he's the one who started it all. But he's still in a little bit, I think, of a strange position where he used to be the guy for this, right? So, you know, him saying that he was here before anyone else is definitely true. And it was a signature issue of his 2016 campaign. It was very far from Hillary Clinton on this particular issue. And now as his ideas have become more mainstream, he's sort of less differentiated. You know, when you have four of your competitors who are also signed on to your bill, it becomes, I think, a little bit harder to sort of have your own distinctive brand. 
And and it's hard to know. I mean, I was at the press conference in 1993 introducing a single-payer bill that would compete with the then-Clinton plan, the President Bill Clinton plan. Uh, And Sanders was there. He was a backbencher House member at the time. But, I mean, that's how far back he goes with this. Um, And I I think part of it is, does he want to highlight how old he is? I mean, it's not like he's exactly running on that. It's like, yeah, I've been doing this for, you know, 30-some years. Um, Maybe that's not what this electorate is most interested in. I want to. I can if if you don't mind. I want to return back to the the long term care issue yes, just for please. a second because someone reminded me earlier this week uh, that actually long term care was included. A, a program was included in the Affordable Care Act, and basically then it's Secretary, basically this program. Yeah, it's very very similar. Part. Right, and so it was included in the ACA, and then HHS Secretary Kathleen Sebelius. I well remember this because this is when I had first started covering health policy. She basically said, "I can't find a way to like make this." financially work. And so we're going to basically indefinitely suspend the program. And then I think Congress subsequently repealed it in like a spending bill like a year later. Um, But it just kind of reminded me of all the conversation around that. And even that we had passed this into law and still it proved really, really difficult to set it in motion. Although the reason Uh, the reason that didn't work is because it was voluntary and they were afraid that the only people who would sign up were going to be the people who would need the care. Right. And that it would just go and it was supposed to pay for itself. And there was no way to make it pay for itself. But the reason it was voluntary was to save money. So it gets back to this like whole cost it's issue. Like circular. So now they've added on this like big cost, although we don't I don't think we really know how much it costs. And so the so the costs of the bill are growing and growing, but we're not seeing like a growing emphasis on figuring out like, okay, like how would we pay for this long-term care benefit? How would we pay for this this whole thing? And I have found I don't know what you all found in your experience. I found, you know, I get a lot of pushback like when I ask this, like, well, well we don't ask about how to pay for this or that. And like healthcare costs are so high, but like eventually at the end of the day, you need to pay for it. And it just feels like we're hitting and and I kind of well, get it, right? Like that's like the less popular stuff to talk about. But if you're going to turn this into law, like that's I mean, if, be if you're going to be like aspirational about it, what I mean, there of course their argument is that you're saving all of this mm-hmm. other money that you're paying in premiums, and so if people can think about giving that money to the government versus giving it to their health insurance company in premiums, but um, you know, but like that obviously requires like one big transformation at one time, and it seems hard to sell that to people. And, and I also think that sort of economic term for this is distributional effects Mm -hmm. uh, is, you know, you can say, okay, across the entire country, if we take all the money that we spend on healthcare now, and instead of having it spent in all these disparate ways, we're going to just throw it into this Medicare for all bucket will be raised by taxes, but it will be equal. I think there are differing cost estimates, but I think there's like a credible case Mm -hmm. to be made that maybe you could do it for like about what we pay now all in. Uh, but until you actually say how you're going to raise that money, so so say we assume it's the amount of money that we spend right now on health care, how are we going to raise that in taxes? The details of how that tax is raised actually really affects whether any individual person is going to be better or worse off financially, right? Because everyone pays a little bit different amount in premiums, in out-of-pocket costs, in taxes to their state to help support Medicaid programs. Uh, and their employers pay different amounts and their incomes are different and they get a tax exclusion for their employer benefits. I mean, there's there's a lot of complexity to, because we pay for health insurance in so many different ways now and for health care services that uh, until you have a really detailed financing plan, it's really hard to know exactly who the winners and losers are of this change. On a kind of population-wide level, I think there's a credible case to be made that it's just kind of shifting money around. But the 
under-the-hood part of how you shift that money around could really affect. And there could be people who are substantially better off, as the Sanders campaign is fond of saying, but there could be people who are disadvantaged, too. And there could be some surprises about who they are. Yeah, we discovered that with the Affordable Care Act implementation, that there were, you know, you sort of knew there would be winners and losers, but there were losers, I think, who were unexpected sometimes. Well, and the losers in this case, I think, would I would generally expect to be higher income American. Like, if you do a premium that is a percent of income, like, obviously, that percent is a lot bigger if you are in $500,000 than if you are in $50,000. And so the people who would be disadvantaged by this plan are kind of the exact people who have a lot of money to try and fight this kind of plan. So I agree with Margo. Like, the distributional effects are totally, totally key. And you know, we there, there isn't really anything you can send over to CBO quite yet to say, like, OK, here's what those distributional effects would look like. Yes, because we haven't even decided how we're going to pay providers yet, which so is also still Sanders missing. So in the Sanders campaign, uh, so there was a campaign version of this proposal that was a little bit less detailed and had some differences. Uh, and that did was accompanied by a kind of rough uh, financing proposal. So the Urban Institute, which is a think tank that does analyses of a lot of health policy ideas, they looked at both the spending part of the Medicare for All plan in 2016 and the financing part. And they found that the taxes and other funding mechanisms that Senator Sanders were proposing then would pay only for about half. So his bullet point list is a little bit different than that financing plan. And it is, I think, by definition, a lot more vague about exactly what choices they would make. But I think there is reason to be concerned that actually the kind of taxes that would have to be raised are pretty high. And when you have to raise that much revenue, they can't just fall to the rich. I think that, you know, there just isn't enough money there that if you want to raise money such that you're going to pay for the health insurance for everyone in America, that's going to have to be born in a broad way. And that's not necessarily bad. I mean, people would be paying taxes in exchange for getting a really valuable service that they want and that they pay for in other ways now. But the politics of that could be difficult. Good. That feeds perfectly into where I want to go next. Um, Republicans are having a field day calling Medicare for all socialism. Uh, Meanwhile, it looks like some of the Republicans might actually be worried that Democrats will extend their lead on what's looking like a pivotal issue in the next campaign. We saw White House health officials retreat to Camp David over the weekend to talk about a plan. We're not sure what that plan is that we're talking about. And in Congress, some Republicans are taking another shot at a standalone bill they say would protect people with pre-existing conditions. How well are Republicans playing both offense and defense here? Which one's going to win out? It's so messy. (laughs) How they even talk about this at this point is just it's just beyond strange to me, honestly. Um, But I saw the White House put out a a, a statement on the introduction of the Sanders bill because that's where they want to be. They want to be saying we hate Medicare for all rather than this sort of murky mess they have with the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Well, that's certainly where Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell wants to shift. That was like the first words out of his mouth when Trump went on his tear a couple weeks ago, he was like, I'm focused on Medicare for all. I don't know what you're talking about, Mr. President. But um, yeah, I don't. They, it's just um, their messaging on this. It's just like really, really tricky. Um, I, I mean, I think I think what they need to do probably is just to sh- try to shift back to Medicare for all, because the longer that the focus is on this lawsuit, um, it's, it, you know, they don't the want to talk that, about that, that it. The lawsuit where the lower court oh, said that the entire Affordable Care Act is now unconstitutional. Right. So this is the lawsuit where the Trump administration is basically siding with the conservative states, saying that the entire law should be erased. And, you know, it's really put Trump's secretary appointees in a really tricky spot. It was really striking to me to see how 
how um, William Barr, uh, Attorney General William Barr, talked about it when he was on the Hill on Tuesday. He was questioned. He seemed to get almost as many questions about that lawsuit as he got about the Mueller report. Yeah. And he seemed to be trying to strike a weird balance between saying, you know, I, I serve at the pleasure of the president, but I also think this is kind of ridiculous. And I think he even used the word hokey at one point to describe the lawsuit. But, you know, HHS Secretary Azar was also questioned about this a week earlier when he when he was um, before a Senate committee. And his response was like interesting. He basically said he was trying to differentiate between a policy standpoint at HHS and a legal standpoint advanced by the Justice Department. Um, And I don't know enough about like DOJ to know whether that kind of an argument has been tried. But, you know, it just seems a little bit odd for him to be saying, well, we, we think policy wise that it's actually better for a lot of these consumer protections to be in place. But, you know, what the DOJ is doing over there in the corner is completely separate from what we think at HHS. But that's sort of how he's Which trying is to funny get around because it. Because Barr said that it had to do with the policy. Right. They're kind of making the same argument and shoving it back onto on the, the other, other on the other person. Um, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall at that meeting last uh, weekend at Camp David. I think it involved Azar and also Seema Verma, who heads the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Um, and just to hear what... And some of the White House folks. And some of the White House folks, of course, who were sort of the ones, I think, behind this push to turn their back on the entire ACA. Um, so there are a lot of really deep divisions there. Um, so, you know, I, I'm i sure there were a lot of disagreements aired. I bet. There's, it feels to me almost like there's a parallel split uh, in both parties where you have on the Republican side, the Republican leadership very much wanting to say, let's just stick with the status quo on health care. We know we've been criticizing the Affordable Care Act for a really long time, but our efforts to overturn it were super unpopular. We lost a lot of seats. We don't really have a great plan for what's next. Let's just you know, stay the course. Talk about other things. Talk about other things. And then you have the White House and, you know, some members of Congress, but particularly the White House saying, no, 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 we have to tear it up. We have to do this radical change. We want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act and and be the party of health care, as the president says. And then on the Democratic side, you actually see the leadership in Nancy Pelosi and and other prominent Democrats in Congress saying, we have to protect and strengthen the Affordable Care Act. We want to make minor changes to, uh, you know, plug some holes. We want to reaffirm our commitment to protecting pre-existing conditions. And then you have Senator Sanders and many of the 2020 contenders who are going much further and who are saying, you know, they have a different vision for how they want to tear it up and start over, but they have a kind of similarly extreme idea about rejecting the framework of the Affordable Care Act and doing something new. And uh, it will be interesting to see, you know, depending on the results of the next election, whether either party is able to coalesce around a particular vision. Are they going to stick with this kind of uh, more radical approach on either side? Or are are we going to sort of be stuck with the status quo and this kind of gridlock because there's indecision within each party about where to go next? And to your point about the extremism on either side, I feel like totally ignores like the reality that we now have, what, 25 million more Americans that have coverage because of the ACA. And a lot of states, like more than a dozen conservative love states that have accepted Medicaid expansion. Yeah, well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> right. But um, but yeah, like just those realities, you just, like you hear this talk in Washington and then you think about the people that have coverage and there seems to be such a disjoint there. I'm intrigued by the Republicans continually 
clinging to this idea of no matter what, we're going to protect. They keep saying we're going to protect pre-existing conditions. They're people. You're not protecting. Oh, I loved your tweet on that the other day, Julie. I was (laughs) like, yes, that's been driving me nuts, too. (laughs) But I love the fact that they can't seem to get no matter what, we're going to protect pre-existing conditions. Are the Republicans going to be able to get away with that? They made this argument through the midterm elections. You had President Trump tweeting again, drive me up the wall about how they were the party of protecting people with pre-existing conditions while they're also party to this lawsuit asking courts to throw it out. And if you look at the Trump budget, you know, it endorses the Graham-Cassidy plan, which would let states bring back pre-existing conditions into the insurance market. But it's a great political argument, right? Like if people, if you look at the polling from Kaiser Family Foundation, you know, people love the idea of outlawing pre-existing conditions. So I totally understand why, you know, you see someone like Kellyanne Conway going on cable news and saying, you know, we're going to have a plan to protect this. But it's just everything we've seen from them legally, policy-wise, just doesn't make that – doesn't make – right on that kind of promise. It would be really hard if the Affordable Care Act went away because of this lawsuit to just pass a standalone law saying insurers have to cover people with pre-existing conditions because I think right now what's making the exchanges work when they have to sell to people, you know, who have health problems is that the subsidies are still there and they're still so big that healthier people, it's still a good deal for those healthier people, but one would presume they would not put the subsidies back. Yeah. I feel like this is it goes to a are you on the offense or the defense on healthcare? And I think if we've learned anything over the last nine years that politically speaking, you want to be on the offense <laughs> and not on the defense because Republicans did great as long as they were on the offense about Obamacare and all well, of these until it terrible... came time to actually move the ball. Right. And so now they've been on the defense about trying to destroy the pre-existing condition protections. So that's that's the place to be. If any Republicans or Democrats are listening to this podcast, that's our advice. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we have both. All right. Well, Meanwhile, in news about things that could happen in this Congress, the Senate Finance Committee brought the heads of the major pharmacy benefit manager firms in to testify following the hearing last month featuring the heads of the major drug manufacturing companies uh, still trying to get to the bottom of why drug prices are so high. Uh, Have lawmakers gotten an answer to this question yet? It's not the PBM's fault. It's not their fault. (laughs) No. I, I, there was a. I actually tuned into a hearing yesterday at Energy and Commerce Oversight Subcommittee, and oh, on uh, insulin, Joe, I was on, that was on that. insulin. But a lot of the PBM folks were there, and Joe, Representative Joe Kennedy, actually, who has really had some good, like, pointed moments questioning these guys. Um, you know, expressed a lot of frustration. He's like, I just keep seeing this blame shifting, and you have to know how frustrating this is for lawmakers to sit here and try to get answers from you guys. Um, but it was kind of a lot of what we we heard. But I mean, so we had the hearing, of course. Uh, the House or the Senate Finance on Tuesday, where we had the five major PBMs represented there, and then the hearing yesterday. But I think it was just a lot of what we've heard before, which is that in these negotiations, they're creating these great formularies and they're making sure that the formularies include the lowest priced drugs and they're bringing all of these savings to the whole, whole system. And, you know, they were asked a couple of times about this idea that their negotiations and because, like, because of the profit that they can make on the difference between the list price and the net the price, spread. the spread, this this idea called of spread pricing. Um, so the idea is that this actually uh, prompts 
the pharmaceutical companies to increase the list price of drugs. And, um, you know, they were asked a couple of times pretty pointedly by lawmakers, like, have you directly tried to get drug makers to increase the list prices? And they said no. But I don't know that those were totally satisfactory answers because, of course, the whole system is like really opaque still. Um, And, you know, they've been pushing back really hard against this proposed rule by the Trump administration, which I think was proposed in January and may come out this summer, which would basically ban the rebates in the Medicare space and in some Medicaid-managed care plans. It was a little bit similar to the hearing we saw when, was it February, when the drug executives also yeah, came before was, Senate finance? Yeah, it last month. It was February. I know. It seems like yesterday. But, um, you know, I, I, I think I to me the value in all of this is that it's putting a lot of public pressure on these companies too. And and we have seen a series of announcements um, over the last couple of months of sort of incremental things that I think they're doing to try to remake their image. So we saw announcements they, the from, drug companies. Sorry, the drug – yes, the drug companies and the, the PBMs also. Um, so we've seen a couple announcements from um, Express Scripts, um, also from Sanofi, uh, where they're – starting some new programs which would basically limit the out-of-pocket costs for diabetic patients. And Cigna, the insurer, is doing that too. Right. And so, I mean, even if like hypothetically there are no – ultimately no policy changes or no legislation passed, I still think you have the public pressure effect of – more people are tuning into this problem, more people are understanding this problem, these companies are feeling pressure to, you know, try to make medications more affordable for people. So we've seen we've had all these hearings. Do we are we any closer to, to thinking what Congress might do on this score? It's it still seems like there are small things that there could be consensus about, but that there are not big things that both houses of Congress are interested in doing. But I, I do think I, I feel increasingly optimistic that there are some kind of small changes that could pass. I don't think that those changes are necessarily like getting at the heart of the PBM business or, you know, really fundamentally changing intellectual property protections around uh, new drugs or changing fundamentally the way that Medicare negotiates for the prices for plans uh, for drugs in Part D. But I think some legislation is uh, seems like it's going to move well, forward. So the two main House committees with health care jurisdiction actually did pass bills um, in the last couple of weeks. And I've been told, although leadership has not confirmed this, that they may bundle some of those things together and hold a vote like at the beginning of May. Um, but to Margot's point, they're sort of like the low hanging fruit that both parties can agree on. So they mostly have to do with trying to remove barriers to competition and trying to improve transparency. Um, but they're not things that in and of themselves would like move the needle dramatically. But they will allow lawmakers to say that they've tried to take on this problem and that they're tackling it. And And they want to. (laughs) All right. Uh, Okay. More news on the Medicaid front. Uh, After Utah last week got federal permission to expand Medicaid in a way that was unlike the expansion that voters approved last November, a similar thing happened this week in Idaho. Uh, Voters there also approved a straight expansion of the program. You were talking about that earlier, Paige. But this week, the governor signed a bill that would impose a work requirement or at least ask the federal government for a work requirement. And like Utah, put some of those in the Medicaid expansion group on the state health exchange instead where the state wouldn't have to foot any of the bill like they will for the Medicaid expansion, although it's still only 10 percent. How is there not more pushback on this from these two states? Yeah, I think what's been interesting to watch with Utah and Idaho and really starting with Maine is kind of how these ballot initiatives might not be the kind of um, 
silver bullet that advocates had thought they would be. So it seemed like these ballot initiatives, when they started passing, that, oh, oh, we have a way to kind of get around an uncooperative governor, an uncooperative legislature. Turns out that's not really the case. That the They whole, still have a lot of power, those whole, governors and legislatures. The whole reason they went to ballot initiatives in any of these states is because the, you know, folks in the legislature and the governor's mansion wouldn't pass Medicaid expansion. And I think they are running into more roadblocks than I was told to expect, you know, from when I talked to advocates going into this election, I heard a lot of like, no, 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 it won't be like Maine. You know, this government says they'll respect the will of the people. But then, you know, you have so many people in the legislature, you know, you have so many voices and, you know, and we should point out in this. Maine, the expansion only came when they actually elected a new governor of the other yeah, party. I think that's why I actually disagree slightly with okay. Sarah, that these are states that really were going nowhere on mm-hmm. Medicaid expansion. And then the uh, ballot initiatives really kind of pushed the ball into the court of the legislature and said, you have not dealt with this. If you do not take affirmative steps to do this in the way that you want, you're you're going to have to do it in the kind of fullest, most expansive way that the voters have told you to do it. And it is true that these pieces of legislation and these waiver applications and the approval of one of them uh, does mean that these Medicaid expansions are different than what the voters voted for. But they are still getting a Medicaid mm-hmm. expansion that probably would not have moved forward in the absence of those votes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. I think there was just like a rosier. Like, Maine was like, yes. just like, no way. We're stuck. We're not. Gonna yeah. Yeah. I mean, no one has gone as far as Paula Page just saying, like, you could throw me in jail before. I, you know, <laughs> I don't think the governors of Utah or Idaho are planning to go to jail over this. But I think there's also been... It is a different Medicaid expansion than what was being advocated for. It's certainly more Medicaid expansion than would have happened without the ballot initiative. I would still expect— But it's not what the voters voted for. It's not for. what the voters voted for. At the same time, I'd still expect from the people running these campaigns that they're going to do more of these ballots. At the end of the day, they feel like the balance is towards more people getting coverage. But I think it's been a bit of a wake-up call that it might not be what the voters want and what you are pushing that becomes the Medicaid expansion. And we should point out that that um, it's not at all clear yet that these, you know, both Utah and Idaho now have, you know, work requirements. Well, we don't know what the status is of work requirements in Medicaid. The administration announced this week mm-hmm. that it's going to appeal the rulings that struck them down in Arkansas and Kentucky. So that is all still up in the air. And I, need, I do need to point out that I misspoke last week when I talked about Utah's partial expansion um, because they're not, that's, that's not something that hasn't happened before. Uh, the federal government still hasn't ruled on whether you can use expansion money for that partial expansion. So they basically did um, what Wisconsin did, you know, many years ago. That they're they're just getting their regular Medicaid matching rate instead of the the bigger chunk, the bigger pot of federal money that they would like to attach. But I, but I think the bottom line is these states want to spend less money on the Medicaid expansion than voters voted for. And I think these legislatures are helped by the fact that we have. Uh, administration mm-hmm. in the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and Seema Verma, the administrator there, who was really open to new ideas about how to administer the Medicaid program and who was approving things that previous administrations would not have. And so, as you say, those are tied up in the courts and we don't know whether the things that she is approving will be allowed but I think that sort of creates this open door for these legislatures to try, you know, new things that that I think the Obama administration would have just simply told them, no, this is not going to be approved. Don't pass these kinds of bills. I think this is a real long game because if these work requirements and the partial expansions and some of the weird HMO restrictions, I think, that would affect women's access to certain kinds of uh, birth control providers, if those things get knocked out by the courts, then maybe these states are actually back with the straight expansion that uh, the voters had approved. 
We'll have to see. So that is the news for the week. Now we will play my interview with Cece Connolly. Then we'll come back and do our extra credits. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Cece Connolly, president and CEO of the Alliance of Community Health Plans, and full disclosure, my former colleague way back when at Congressional Quarterly. Cece, thank you for being here. Julie, thank you. And I definitely want to clarify, we were teenagers when we did that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So start by telling us a little bit about uh, ACHP and what makes you different from some of the other big health insurance groups around Washington. And thank you for asking. So it stands for the Alliance of Community Health Plans. And our members, it's intentionally a small, um, we like to think, elite group of nonprofit provider-aligned, community-based plans. Each of those elements, I pause a beat because they are meaningful, and it's a business model uh, that we just happen to feel is right for patients, consumers, and communities. So with that nonprofit mission-driven focus, you tend to behave a little bit differently. When you have the plans aligned with the providers, often in integrated delivery systems, they're all sitting around the table together with the same set of incentives as opposed to battling across the table together. And then that community-based, it really does make a difference when you're a neighbor and you're thinking about the health of a community. All right. So there's three big issues uh, that everybody in healthcare is talking about right now. Uh, drug prices, the future of the Affordable Care Act, and the future of the healthcare system writ large. Let's start with drug prices. Everybody agrees that they are too high, but no one agrees on what to do about it. So what is one thing you think Congress and President Trump could agree on that your members say would help the situation? Well, I'm going to be intentionally small bore incremental baby steps because after so many years in Washington, D.C., I see that often the grand master plan um, fails, but the baby steps can be meaningful. Foundationally, on drug pricing, there's a CREATES Act, which voted out of committee in the House last week, um, which would make it easier for generics to come to market. That's very positive. Well, basically harder for brand name to block to, generics to block. from coming to market. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So let's get that one done. Everybody says they support it. It actually saves money, which is unusual with legislation. Let's do that. We think some of the pay for delay efforts to crack down on that would also be positive. And then um, transparency. And you're now seeing, Julie, several transparency bills. I don't know that we need to pick one over the other. We need as much of that sunshine as possible. Transparency about prices. So people would know who's paying how much for which drug. Yes, and specifically in drug pricing. And we had um, up here in Washington all day today, executives from three of our member plans have PBMs that are a 100% transparent, fee-based pass-through model. Every single dollar of rebate, discount, you name it, gets sent right back to the customer. You can look at their books and see the dollar flow. The beauty of that is the actual list price starts to come down because the skimming or the spread pricing, as we've heard about in the mystery black box system, is what jacks up prices. So let's start with creates, pay for delay, and an awful lot of transparency. 
while we're talking about transparency, I do want to ask you about surprise bills because that's another big issue where we seem to have the insurers on one side and the providers on the other side, and you're sort of in the middle on this, right? Yes. And so as a result, we certainly can see, um, you know, many different sides of this issue. Again, though, I think that there are ways to focus on the real problem. It's not every single provider in our healthcare system. We are really seeing a very small handful of specialty services that seem to be the most egregious. So let's try to home in on those problems as opposed to tossing out the entire or coming up with some big new crazy system. We're seeing some encouraging developments in California, which has some state law now on this. So we'd like to look to that as a bit of a model. And the other thing, Julie, it's so funny, you know, when we talk about surprise billing, I sometimes joke that every single piece of mail that my husband gets from a healthcare company is a surprise to him. So um, that said, though, um, many people are simply facing a high deductible, and they think that's a surprise bill. And sadly, it's the plan that they signed up for. And uh, so we need some education just around what products people are buying. So sometimes when you go to an in-network facility, you get basically your in-network bill, but because you haven't reached your deductible, you're expected to pay exactly. sometimes thousands and, of dollars. And it's a shocker and it's a large sum. And so that's one of the current challenges now, especially where you see some of that cost shifting onto consumers. Think if they have a $2,000, $3,000, $8,000 deductible, man, that hurts. So let's get a little bit bigger. The Affordable Care Act, assuming Washington would like to make it work better, uh, and that's a big if, what would be something that Congress could do to to maybe, I won't say fix the ACA because we know Republicans don't want to fix it, but at least make it a little more workable? Uh, sure. So the first thing is everybody <laughs> do like we did, which is hopefully file an amicus brief in that Texas court case, which suddenly with the directive to the DOJ now to get behind that, we we have much higher to get behind the decision to throw out the entire law. Yes. Thank you. Um, Which we weren't anticipating. We were really expecting that the administration was going to stay focused on the individual mandate. Um, But now we see that as a more serious threat. It may take a while because the courts move slowly, um, but we do want everybody to take that very seriously. Um, Separate from that, I think uh, this is less Congress, but continuing with Medicaid expansion, Wow, that's great. Access to affordable coverage and care. And then here in D.C. for Congress to really stop and think about strengthening um, the individual market. And we now see in a number of states where reinsurance is absolutely working. Minnesota, Wisconsin, Maryland, early days, but the rates come way down. Um, And you look at that, uh, Oregon is another example, where with that reinsurance, kind of like a financial safety net for the super high cost cases, you can manage those just a little better, spread that risk around. And I want to say in Wisconsin and Minnesota, premiums are coming down double digits. I mean, that gets you to affordable coverage. Finally, the Democrats are obviously talking beyond the ACA to let's just start over. Let's give Medicare to everybody or let's give Medicare to lots more people or let's give Medicaid to lots more people. Um, Is there some big picture reform that that your members would like to see? Mm. 
Um, or wouldn't like to see. Yeah. So, you know, even though we came when we were teenagers, Julie, boy, that makes me feel old to think about something like that all over again. Honestly, I can approach this from a substantive healthcare perspective or from my old days as a political journalist. So first as a political journalist who hit 49 states covering presidential campaigns, I honestly don't think that Americans are looking for a government takeover of their health care system, especially the 151 million that are on an employer-sponsored plan. But even some of the folks that are in managed Medicaid or Medicare Advantage, I think they're benefiting from some of that private sector competition. So I don't see the wholesale government takeover as being a cultural fit for the United States. We believe in capitalism. We believe in choice. We believe in competition. Now, to look at it from kind of a substantive health policy situation, we've made strides in healthcare in the U.S., as you know better than anyone, Julie. I mean, we have lower uninsured rates in this country. We are getting more to evidence-based care. We are talking about slowly, slowly, absolutely, um, social determinants of health. I mean, it's, it's way too slow for me. I wish we jumped from volume to value so fast. You know, fragmented fee-for-service medicine, nothing frustrates me more than that. So don't get me wrong, you know, I um, I see all of the flaws, but I don't think we should upset the foundation that's working. Um, we talked about something like reinsurance to stabilize and strengthen the individual market. We talk about continuing to expand Medicaid. We are right now studying some buy-in proposals proposals. And what we're looking at is, do they potentially solve a problem? If you talk about something like single payer or Medicare for all, my question is always, what problem are you solving? Because I envision it potentially creating more problems. So if we say, well, one problem might be coverage for a certain age group, maybe they're 55 or 60 years old, right? We're in a gig economy. Not everybody has the same permanent job with benefits. So maybe that's a group to focus on and maybe a buy-in would be effective. Same, you know, I'm interested in New Mexico and the Medicaid buy-in because it sounds to me like somebody's trying to target a problem and have a smart solution. So we're right now examining buy-in options as sort of those targeted fixes. All right. Well, I'm sure we have much more to go in this debate, and we'll talk again. Thank you for coming Wonderful. In. Thank you. Cece Connolly. Okay, it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Yes, so I'm going to uh, share this story from Politico called Public Option Hits a Wall in Blue States from um, Rachna Pradhan and Dan Goldberg. And, you know, I had written about a few months ago all these states, Washington, New York, um, a lot of places were kind of had turned blue in the election and were very enthusiastically introducing public options. Politico had the smart idea to follow up with those that legislation and find it is not really going anywhere. So I thought this story was a helpful reminder, particularly, you know, in the context of Bernie Sanders introducing his Medicare for All plan of looking at a more moderate plan in more liberal locations still struggling to get off the ground. I think it's a reminder of how truly difficult it is to move health reform forward. 
This stuff is hard. Margot. <laughs> uh, I have a story also from Politico from our friend uh, Joanne Kennan, who's often on the podcast with us, uh, who had uh, just a piece that made me green with jealousy last week. Uh, Obamacare fight obscures America's real health care crisis money. Uh, and she points out this thing that I think we all know and, and talk about in some ways, but she just hit it so head on, which is that when you think about what distinguishes the United States healthcare system from other countries, the biggest thing is that we just have an incredibly expensive healthcare system, and that's what makes it so hard for the government f- to finance for individual people to pay for their own medical care. And that that is sort of the underlying problem that makes so many of these debates about health reform so hard. That the health reform debate is so often focused around insurance. How are we going to finance insurance? How much is the public going to pay for? How much are individual people going to pay? How are we going to dole out these various forms of subsidization? But that all of that debate in some way has led us to ignore this underlying problem, which is the costliness. And until we have a good strategy for the costliness, it may mean that proposals like the Sanders plan that we talked about later just feel so outrageously expensive. And it's because the system costs so much. So covering everyone costs a lot. And uh, she talked with a lot of really smart people who have had their eye on this for a long time. Uh, And I think the recognition that healthcare is too expensive is actually not partisan. And some of the proposed solutions for it also are not partisan. But uh, they're, they're really hard. Paige. Uh, my story is from Stat News uh, called Amazon Alexa is now HIPAA compliant, and it's by <laughs> Casey Ross. And so basically this is about how Amazon rolled out software that allows healthcare companies to build Alexa voice tools that are capable of securely transmitting um, like patient information. And I must admit when I read this story, it was really interesting, but I was also really skeptical because I guess for two reasons. Um, one is that people are already really worried that Alexa is like listening in on them. And, and Alexa actually does like have a record of everything that you've ever said to it. Um, so it's just a little bit hard for me to believe that people are going to be be okay with like getting test results over Alexa. And then the other part of it is, I mean, it's really, it's great to like learn about technological innovations in healthcare, but I feel like we're still like stuck in this place where records are faxed and like even the, you know, systems that we use to communicate with our doctors, like my doctor actually just finally got my Gmail address because the system is so clunky to use. So, uh, so it was, it was an interesting article because Amazon, of course, is one of several companies that's trying to really like innovate in this space and involve its products in, you know, help pa- patient information. Um, but in a lot of ways, we're still kind of du- stuck in the dark ages. And yeah, I'm well, not sure how soon we're going to get out of it. My only comment on that story is I'm not going to start sending my medical information over my Alexa <laughs> until it recognizes my correct Jeopardy answers as correct. <laughs> <laughs> the best thing at the end of this article, they said, I guess the author asked Alexa, Alexa, are you HIPAA compliant? And Alexa's response was, I, I don't know the answer to that question. So <laughs> Alexa needs to catch up on the news, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, my story this week is from Margot and her colleagues, Kevin Quealy and Josh Katz at The New York Times. It's called Would Medicare for All Save Billions or Cost Billions? And it's not only a very cool interactive showing who would spend more or less under various Medicare for All assumptions, but a really excellent explanation of how those various assumptions you make about how Medicare for All would be structured can change the overall numbers in distributions by a lot. Um, and trust me, she wrote it better than I explained it just now, so you really should read it. <laughs> and you can also play you, with Julie. the little interactive. It's very cool. So that is our show. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. Last call for our Ask Us Anything that will air next week. We're at What the Health all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. 
at PW underscore Cunningham. At Sanger Katz. At Sarah Cliff. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. 